With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The GabFest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer, and have your postal carrier pick up your packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get $55 in free postage when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for October 24th, 2014, the Fake ID edition. I'm David Plotz, the CEO of Atlas Obscura in Washington, D.C. On this week's show, have billionaires become more powerful than political parties? Then the confusing political showdowns over voter ID. And then Ben Bradley's death and the legacy of Watergate. Is journalism better or worse off now because of Watergate? We will find out. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, there will be a Bazelon special. Emily will riff majestically on Obama's judicial appointments and whether he will ever get another judge confirmed after the Republicans take the Senate. That's code for David is unprepared to discuss that topic. Not at all. Come on. This is like, <laughs> this is, our listeners are sitting there waiting. They're sitting uh-huh. there waiting. So Emily Bazelon is back, thank God, after her one-week absence. We missed you. It's good to have you back. Do you know that by saying that you didn't know where I was, you made my mom panic? She sent me an email <laughs> that was like, where are you? David doesn't know where you are. He has no idea. Where are you? <laughs> That's so great. (laughs) Your mom, I'm sorry I embarrassed you with your mother. Did you get back in touch with her? Yes, it was all fine. Good. I didn't want want to worry. Worry Mama Bazelon. But now now that Emily is back, John has decided to make himself scarce. I don't know where he is either. I think he's probably out covering the so-called campaign. He has politics covering to do. But there's no worries because in Dickerson's place, we have... Gabfest veteran, at least one time, two time possible Gabfest veteran, David Leonhart. David is the editor, the creator of the most delightful and exciting and brilliant new section at the New York Times, The Upshot. David, welcome back. Thank Thank you. you. It's great to be here. I Uh, cannot be John, but I will fill in best as I can. So, just a quick announcement before we get started. We have, of course, a live show sponsored by Acura in Chicago, November 12th at the Park West. There are still tickets available at slate.com slash chai gabfest, C-H-I gabfest. I guess the letter chai, possibly. We have special guest Amy Dickinson of Ask Amy. It's going to be a great show. We're, it's our conundrum show, our annual conundrum show. So we're, we're going to tackle really both difficult and fun and uh, weird ethical, moral, practical questions about life. So one, what's the first thing you do when you're visiting a new city alone? There's another one, which is 75% of NASA employees say they would take a one-way ticket to Mars to go on a Mars expedition. Would you take that? There's no way I any of us is going to take 75%. that. I mean, They do no, work for NASA. They would not. Yeah. Well, that was a quick discussion. That was, a, that was yeah. quickly solved. Leonhardt apparently <laughs> is going to take it, though. I'm trying, just still thinking through. The one-way ticket is actually meaning you go, you see it, and then you die. But no, you don't, you don't die. You live there. You're a colonizer. Oh, you You're stay col- there. Yeah, you try you to survive, and you never come back. 
And you probably die eventually. Well, you definitely will and die eventually. And it's Mars that's not particularly habitable or habitable, however you say that right, word. Right, if it were, if it were we Bali, maybe it would be like, yeah, okay, Bali would be fine. Maybe. But think about it. That's what people who, were, who emigrated did. People who... That's true. Yes, and they knew that they were Mars, on the so. planet Earth. If you, you know, it's all one big solar system. So we're all, we're all solar system neighbors. Anyway, send us your ideas for conundrums, facebook.com slash gabfest. Tweet them to us at at Slate Gabfest or email them to gabfest at slate.com. Again, November 12th in Chicago, slate.com slash chai gabfest. Tom Steyer, a liberal-leaning micro-billionaire. I say micro because he only has like a billion, right? He doesn't have billions. He's, yeah, he's just not got, Gates or even anywhere, Walton or anything like that. He's a unibillionaire. He's a billionaire piker. He made his money uh, investing. He is now pouring about $50 million of his fortune into midterm elections to push climate change, or at least to push against people who oppose doing things about climate change, mostly Republicans, entirely Republicans. Meanwhile, the Koch brothers, far wealthier billionaires, are continuing to use their various organizations, notably, um, what's it called? American American Americans, Americans for, for Prosperity, to back candidates that who, who favored their quite conservative economic positions. Mike Bloomberg is tossing many millions at uh, gun control candidates or candidates who or t- again, to maybe beat candidates who are more gun crazy than others. Uh, Sheldon Adelson, another billionaire on the right, is spending a lot of money. So, Emily, you're, you are a very good on this topic of money and politics. Is, is the rise of the billionaire spenders simply a result of Citizens United? If so, how? If it's more complicated than that, explain quickly. It's only a little bit more complicated than that because Citizens United opened the door to another appeals court decision that then gave direct rise to the super PACs. And then the super PACs, you still had to disclose your identity. So that led to this independent, quote, independent. I really, we need another word. This dark money where you have groups that ostensibly are not directly supporting candidates. And so then you don't have to disclose how much money you've given anymore. And so now even Sheldon Adelson is not on the record with how much money he's giving to what, as opposed to his big donations to Newt Gingrich, among others, the next time. So we have lots of money slossing around and these kind of competing billionaires duking it out for influence in some key states. And then we have who exactly knows what happening, which is maybe the creepiest part of all, because we can't even keep track of how we're being influenced by who. So, David, why has why did transparency not come? When the Supreme Court waved through Citizens United, they said this is it's fine to allow all this money in, you know, because we'll have disclosure and we'll know who's influencing the system. And that that disclosure has not come. Is that simply because it would require congressional action? And no way Congress is going to do it because the Republicans don't want that or the, the party that's getting more money, which is the Republicans don't want that. Yeah, that's the short version. I mean, there doesn't seem to be – Congress doesn't seem interested in it and there doesn't seem to be such a huge demand that forces Congress to react to it. And so absent that kind of legislation, which I could imagine us getting if we have another period like 2009 and 2010 with, with the Democrats controlling all three branches, right, which will probably happen at some point in the next 25 years. Um, but absent that, it's a little hard to imagine. I I think there is this interesting question of how much does this money matter and in what ways does it matter? Because billionaires cannot buy elections, 
right? We've seen that again and again. I mean, before Huffington was famous for the Huffington Post, it was Michael Huffington, the guy who basically tried to buy the California, was it California governor or senator? And, Senate. And failed. Senate. Spectacularly. And, th- and there are many examples Well, you can't buy an election for yourself. That's what that proved, right? Yes. Um, but <laughs> but even, I mean, you know, when, when political scientists try to look at this and, and say, how much does money actually matter? I think it matters, but I don't think it's quite as simple as the person with the money wins. But so where does it matter? It doesn't matter on particular issues where you can buy a powerful support on an issue which is not the public is not super engaged on. Like on yes, on right, any kind of subsidy, right? You yes, can you tech. can basically buy f- subsidies for the farm industry. You yeah, can or buy it for tech or your ba- your billion, but you billionaire taxes. You do that by taxes, influencing so, lobbyists yeah. and candidates as opposed to direct electoral s- campaign spending, right? Yes, although I do think probably congressmen are more and women are more likely to listen to someone who they know is also giving money to their campaign, which is what you're saying, right? It's not influencing voters so much. And it's also going out and doing the job of identifying politicians who will be ideologically sympathetic to it. So they don't even have to be you don't even have to corrupt them because they actually right. believe it. They just it. have to find them. Just have them. to yes, find I them. Think that's true. I mean, that's one of the things that the Republicans have been so effective about for really a generation is like that targeting from a young age looking for potential candidates who are demographically attractive and and smart and engaging but who who you know are ideologically going to be okay. And now there's a push to do that even on the far right. I mean, the Tea Party is kind of or the Tea Party and Tea Party Coke back Tea Party kinds of organizations are doing that to identify the really conservative folks who will do that for them. In some ways, that's the scariest thing to me, which is we've got all this money sloshing around the system. It doesn't seem like that directly leads to who's going to win this election or that election. And so you might think, oh, why we don't need to care about this at all. But actually, when you look deeper, it's really clear that this money influences policies in all kinds of ways that matter, even if we don't know exactly where all the levers are. And so I think a lot of the public worry about the billionaires is wrong in the little way and right in the big way. It's wrong that they can't buy elections. It's right that it's not so great that in an era of high and rising inequality, we now have all this billionaire money Coming but into so, our so identify the particular baleful places where that money, where it does infect politics and make it different. Why hasn't Re- Wall Street been reined in in a more serious way? Because nobody wants to alienate Wall Street because of all of the money there. And then there are all these substance- subsidies that are hidden that where we can't even really see what's going on because lobbyists are writing in the fine print of legislation particular breaks or rules for powerful groups. And it's it's all kind of small and difficult to get our hands around because until someone – puts a magnifying glass to it. It's essentially like this hidden corruption within the system. And whatever you think of Tom Steyer's methods and whatever you think of his positions on individual issues, there is, I think, a broader point that he's making that's right, which is on climate change is a way it's influencing it. There are all these industries right. that have stand to lose a lot of money right. if we start uh, emitting less carbon and they're playing a big role here. Right. And, and, and you have in the Koch brothers – clearly have ideological reasons for, for doing the things that they do and for supporting the kind of candidates they support. It's, they, they believe this. They also have a gigantic economic vested interest in this too because cutting back on the sort of environmental regulations that Democrats would push helps them enormously. It saves them in the billions of dollars. Right. And Jim Rutenberg's good piece in the Times Magazine last weekend talked about how in Florida – 
in particular where they are supporting Rick Scott, the governor against Charlie Crist, the ex-governor who's the Democratic challenger, that the Koch brothers directly stand to benefit from subsidies that under Scott's administration have gone to companies as Scott has been essentially deregulating, you know, constraining the Environmental Protection Agency in the state. So, D- David, I want to I actually throw this in a different direction while you, you gasped. You had a point, which I stood over. Sorry. Isn't there – it's just as strong an argument to make and, and Jane Mayer has kind of made this implicitly that rich people are underinvested in politics because politics is so cheap yes. that the influence you can gain, the return – the ROI as we say, the R, return on investment for, for politics is actually really high if you want it to serve you. And even if you don't – even if you're doing it for ideological purposes, if you're Sheldon Adelson on Israel rather than Sheldon Adelson on gambling, the ga- when he's trying to influence gambling, he actually wants to gain. But when he wants to influence Israel, it's just for his personal emotional needs. That For a relatively small amount of money, you get a huge impact. And so to me, it's kind of surprising that, you know, OK, they're the Kochs, the Adelsons, Steyer now, Soros, Bloomberg. That's five that I could name. They're probably, you know, five others that, that if we thought for a little while, we'd get more. But that's not a lot of people who are spending not that much money considering how rich America's richest people are to influence things. So shouldn't we expect there to be a lot more of this coming? It's definitely a growth industry, right? I mean, as this becomes, especially if you can do it without disclosing your identity. In fact, there may be another 20 or 30 people who are giving their money more secretly to these outside spending groups. And so we just can't see what they're doing, but they're there. And that's kind of scary, right? Because if, it, yes. if in some ways it's a market inefficiency, if basically rich people for their own sake should be giving more of their money to affect politics, my guess is people are going to figure that out and do more of it. But why do you think they haven't yet? Well, one reason is they're already getting overrepresented in the decisions the government makes. There was that Princeton study that came out, was it over the summer or last spring, that showed that when there is an issue, that where there's a division between essentially the 1% and everybody else, the 1% usually wins. Their views are much more likely to be reflected in the democracy than numerically speaking you would expect. So they've already bought so maybe, Congress, so why, buy, you know, why give them any extra? Congress yeah, is already essentially in their I think there's already such a bias in their direction there aren't that many things that they're not getting that they secretly or desperately really want. And maybe if there's some kind of populist uprising, that will shift and we'll see a more obvious um, set of investments in trying to influence elections. I actually think gay marriage is an interesting issue to think about in that perspective, because what is the issue in which the country has most moved to the left in the last decade? I think it's probably gay marriage. And if it's not, it's definitely in the top three. Why is that? Well, that's for a lot of reasons, right? The United States has this tradition of expanding rights over time. But why has it happened so quickly? I think part of it is that you don't have a lot of big money opposing that. Right, that there are actually a lot of very wealthy individuals who have come to believe in the idea of gay marriage, and one of the reasons why the issue has moved so quickly is because the one percent is essentially in favor of it now, whereas issues that they're against, they have ways to slow down. Right. So, so right. That, why it's also Wall sort Street? of a freebie. Yeah, there, a free- you don't right because there aren't big economic interests at stake. The Supreme Court can kind of make this their overture to liberals. I mean, I'm being very cynical now in describing this, but you know the courts get on board. As you said, this is part of our expanding civil rights tradition. And the people who are trying to stop it are social conservatives who are less politically and socially powerful. And so the larger forces at play can kind of let this play out as a liberal victory. And it's sort of, there's no big cost. Let's assume that, for the sake of argument, that people on the left have as much money and there are as many billionaires. It's probably not true, but let's just assume that it were, were true. 
would they be as effective as the right has been? Or is it that the right have picked issues where money serves them better? The issues that the left would push on, you somehow couldn't get the same kind of traction, like on climate change or on guns. And Michael Bloomberg's having no luck at all spending money on guns, as far as I can tell. Yeah, guns is such a hard one. Let's see. What else could the left come up with? That well, they Wall Street. Behind Let's say some... whilst the left yeah, wanted to go after Wall Street. Could they do that? I think what's hard is that while it's definitely true that of the really rich people we can name, there are a lot of people on the left, right? To some extent, Gates is on the left, right? Not on everything, but yeah, to yeah. some extent, Buffett is. Yeah. Bloomberg, for all his talk of centrism, yeah, yeah. is yeah. basically on yeah, the yeah. left. When you look at all the money out there, right, you could imagine a few individual rich people wanting to crack down on Wall Street. But Wall Street sure doesn't want to crack down on Wall Street. And in aggregate, Wall Street has a ton of money. And maybe that's part of the issue, that even if there are individual billionaires who actually tilt quite liberal on some things, they are often fighting against a lot of money that is not going to have any interest in a marginal tax rate of 50% or tougher regulations of Wall Street. What about immigration? That's one where you could imagine the left with some support from the Chamber of Commerce actually making real inroads, even though I'm pessimistic about that. Well, I think the politics of immigration are really interesting because the Republicans have absolutely no incentive to address immigration now, right? My colleague Nate Cohn did this great piece this week in which he did a simulation imagining the midterm election in which Republicans got zero Hispanic votes. And they still keep the house, right? Zero Hispanic votes. <laughs> and That's they fantastic. still keep the house. And not only that, but he said they actually. Marco Rubio would definitely vote. And Ted Cruz would definitely vote for them. So they would get two. They would get two. Yeah. I mean, I think something like 20% of, of Latinos are registered as Republicans. But even if you imagine they got zero, they keep the house. And there are even some scenarios in which they keep the Senate. That wow. obviously is not true in a presidential election year. And Ari Fleischer, the Republican former spokesman to George Bush, has made a version of this point, which is it is easier to see immigration happening in the two years running up to a presidential election. And so to combine that with the money, you could imagine some money both from the right, the business part, and from the left comes off the sidelines. And you can imagine immigration reform happening. Like you, Emily, I'm sort of – I'm skeptical that we're going to have any re- – legislation of any significance in 2015 or 16? Rationally speaking, there's an argument that it should happen, even though probably the forces are arrayed against it and the forces arrayed in favor of simply zero happening in Congress are probably greater. All right. Let us uh, move on. But first, a word from our sponsor. We're sponsored this week by Stamps.com. Making trips to the post office is becoming a thing of the past. You just don't need to do it anymore, thanks to Stamps.com. You already know that going to the post office is inconvenient. You have to drive there, find parking, wait in line. What you probably didn't know is that you're paying more for postage there than you have to. Stamps.com is a better way. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, right from your computer and printer, then just hand it to your mail carrier. With Stamps.com, you get special postage discounts you can't even get at the post office on first-class priority mail, international mail, and more. So you'll never go to the post office again. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST, of course. Special offer, a no-risk trial. You get a scale and up to $55 in free postage, $110 bonus offer. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. The Supreme Court, over emphatic objections from Justice Ginsburg that Emily will channel in a second, allowed a strict new voter ID law in Texas 
to be used in the midterm elections this week. They decided that was okay. The law requires Texans to show one of seven forms of government-issued ID, including your concealed gun permit. So you're good, Leonhardt. You're fine. Excellent. In order to cast a ballot, critics say this could knock out as many as, I think, 400,000 voters yes. who don't have the right ID. And the state is not making it easy for people to get the right ID. Some people would have to travel hours to be able to get the a right form of ID. A similar kind of law in Wisconsin was stayed. It is not going into effect yet. Uh, North Carolina law, which ended same-day voter registration, right? That is yes. that is going forward. And so yes. is Ohio's cutback on early voting. So, Emily... The original claim for all this voter ID legislation was that there is a lot of there is some amount of election fraud. We need to stop it with ID. This has been shown to be a complete fiction. It's utterly been demolished. Two cases of voter fraud in like the history of Texas. I'm exaggerating only slightly. In-person voter fraud we're talking about. Yes. More people married to Kim Kardashian than committed voter fraud, as they say about the Ebola cases. So why are these laws taking effect if, in fact, the legal justification for them has been shown to be meretricious? non-existent. Yes. Well, so let's talk about Wisconsin and Texas. The The Supreme Court stopped the Wisconsin law and allowed the Texas law. Why? The reason... Why? The, the Why, only, David? I was thinking exactly that, but I knew Emily would explain. The, I'm, I'm sure you already know this. The only commonality is this idea that you don't mess around with elections law right before an election. It doesn't actually make any sense. Okay, so, right, you shouldn't let Wisconsin put their law into effect since it's clear they're not really ready to do that. And that was the direction of the lower court opinion. But in Texas, you also shouldn't let them put their law into effect because, as Ginsburg's opinion dissent laid out, they weren't ready to do it either. So there's this notion of uh, on a sort of fig leaf um, of not making a last minute change right before an election. But in fact, if what you're talking about is taking away the franchise. Just to stop there, because I don't think you made something clear, which is that the Wisconsin law just went into effect and Texas's law has been on the books for – a while. They've been preparing yes. for the last year and a half to have this election under the new code. They may not have done a good job, but that is their that's what they that's were doing. That's ostensibly the difference. Yes, you're right. I didn't make that clear. But I, I mean I really think when you start thinking about it, that doesn't make any sense. Because if you're talking about taking away the franchise, making it easier for people to take away the franchise when they've been disorganized about it, if you then turned around and said, Oh, all these people can vote after all. If you know that in-person voter fraud is not a real danger, there's no risk in that. And the district court in Texas found that this is a racially discriminatory law. So this is the first time any election scholar I spoke to could think of that a racially discriminatory voting law has been allowed to go into effect simply because it would seem administratively inconvenient to change it um, in the two weeks before the election. David, these laws were passed by duly elected legislators signed by elected governors. They have popular support in most of the states where they Yes, they do. they have taken effect. Why is this a big deal? What's the big deal about it? Maybe well, this it isn't. is this is I mean, this is pretty blunt partisan politics, right? What we have without exception are these are laws that Republicans are trying to put in place. I don't doubt that some of the people who want to put them in place are worried about voter fraud, but voter fraud is not actually a significant problem. And what we know is that a lot of marginal voters in this country uh, are Democrats. In fact, they're much more likely to be Democrats. I remember this great statistic. I forget the exact number, but people always talk about likely voters. President Obama led unlikely voters 
by something like 40 points in 2012, right? People who are on the verge of voting and might or might not vote tend to be quite democratic. And so there's a huge incentive for the, the, all the people you mentioned, the legislators, the governors, to if they're Republicans, to put these in effect. And the story around them sounds really good, right? We're going to prevent cheating. And I think that's part of why they have popular support. Okay. You have explained very well why it is that Democrats are up in arms. I would argue there's a master narrative that the left is trying to to shove down the throats of everybody, which is that oh, we have raw partisan politics being practiced by Republicans in this case simply to discriminate against minority voters and this is disgusting and I don't dispute that. I don't dispute there's a racial intent behind these laws too. But the same thing could have been said about the laws to expand the franchise in these ways, that the motor voter legislation itself was a partisan law shoved down the throat of Republicans in order to get marginal voters to make it super easy for marginal voters to vote. So, But when we're talking about expanding the right to vote, that is a good. And preventing non-existent fraud is a that. bad. That's what you say. Your claim is that expanding the right to vote and making it trivial to vote is a good thing. Like we should make everyone should be able to vote from their phone. You should be able to vote at the swimming pool. You should be able to, to you know, to go out to McDonald's and vote. I don't think the swimming pool in November would help that many people. Let kids vote. Let everyone vote. I mean, you oh, that letting kids vote while expand the be. franchise to 18 year olds. That was a thing to do. Expand it to 16 year olds. They can vote in Australia. It, it is a story that Democrats year. are telling themselves. It is. It is for 18-year-olds. But I'm saying make it 16-year-olds. <laughs> okay. I just want to make it clear to our 18-year-old listeners they can go vote. It seems to me like that that there's a perfectly legitimate argument to make, and maybe Republicans are afraid to make it, that having some sort of barriers to entry for voting is fine, that it's okay to make it slightly difficult for people to vote, for people to, to have to commit in order to – that it means your electorate is more likely to be – no, it is Engage, not fine. More likely to, to, to know about the issues and more likely to be an informed electorate. And therefore, that's OK as long as it doesn't rise to the level of a poll tax. I think this does rise to the level of a poll tax. When you talk about people living three hours from a government office, cutting off same day voter registration is not a poll tax. That's what North that, Carolina when did. You, I'm going to keep talking because that doesn't – you can vote – people can register to vote relatively easily compared to coming up with the right documents, finding a birth certificate, which some of these states are ostensibly basically requiring, and paying a lot of money. There is like 20 and $30 at stake often, which if you're poor – is significant. And when I just think, simply think of the hassle, people's time is worth money. If it's going to take you a day or two to go to an office, that is not the kind of barrier that we want. Maybe you're making an argument for bringing back some kind of political literacy test, which I also think is so anti-populist as to be an untenable argument, and that's why nobody's making it. But creating a financial barrier, a, bar- a barrier essentially of hassle and time, that seems to me, it's, I just don't think, see how that's supportable. You've just made the honest argument for the Republican side of this issue, right? Which is, which is not the one that the, the supporters of these laws are making, which is voting shouldn't be too easy. You should have to care enough to really want to vote. That rather than voter fraud is the honest argument. But it's not as politically popular as well, the voter fraud No, that's fraud certainly argument. true. No, that's certainly – I'm not claiming that they're being straightforward and honest. But political parties all the time make dishonest arguments to get legislation yes. they want that has a desirable effect passed. And – Voter ID is not a good example for the reasons you just cited, Emily, because it does seem that Texas is imposing a kind of poll tax in this fashion. Yes, and Ginsburg used that term in her dissent. It does. But I'm not sure you can say the same about 
you know, scaling back early voting or – I mean I think early voting, there's a case to be made that early voting is itself grotesque. Because you're deciding You're deciding before the, before end. the end of the campaign. It's, it seems like – it seems antithetical to – in some sense to an informed electorate. Or same-day voter registration seems to me like, you know, there's a kind of impulsivity that you don't necessarily want to reward. And so to say that those kind of laws are, are on their face or, you know, grotesque violations of the democratic process and, you know, against the spirit of America, I don't – I'm not sure that's true. I think the problem is this country is already pretty far on one end of the spectrum, right? We hold our elections on a Tuesday in November, which, as Emily noted, is not a particularly nice time to be outside. We uh, don't give any time off. We don't give any time off, right? And given that we're already uh, on that side of the spectrum, given that we already have lower political participation than a lot of other advanced democracies – it's a little bit hard for me to think, and this is a judgment, I acknowledge, that the problem in the United States is that we have too much political participation. But there certainly is an argument that you don't want to make it too easy to participate in politics. It's an argument that sounds like Emily doesn't buy at all. And I, think, I do not buy it. What's wrong with impulsivity? Early voting, I can sort of see your point a little bit, although I would argue that in the last week, if you want to you know, gamble and vote a week early, how many people really changed their mind in the last week right. and those people don't have to vote? You guys, I, I'm mostly um, just arguing for the sake of arguing. Your point, David, about the fact that we're already far towards the discouraging political participation end of it is a really – that's a really good one. Last – Can I make one more point sure. before you move on? Yeah. Which is one of the things I'm really interested in is what the numbers are going to show about what effect these restrictive voting laws actually have. Because in 2012, despite a lot of upset and dire warnings on the left, they did not seem to really depress turnout in some southern states. And now we're going to find out whether that was simply because poor minority voters came out for President Obama and were, in fact, galvanized by all the press about restrictive voting and said, I am, damn it, I'm exercising my right to this franchise. If that re- if that turnout repeats itself, then it's about more than just Obama. Um, it, and that could be sort of interesting. But I, the research suggests that it, the restrictive laws will have an effect of depressing turnout among often Democratic voters this year. And then you'll have more partisan battling over this. That reminds me of, a, of another point people have made, which is, look, this in the short term will probably help Republicans. I mean, it could it could give the Republicans the election in Georgia, the Senate election. It really could yes. cost Michelle Nunn the, the victory there. There is an argument, though, that in the medium or long term, this has real downsides for Republicans as well, which is Republicans have this huge problem. Every growing segment of the electorate doesn't like Republicans, <laughs> people who aren't white, people who are under the age of 30. And I think a lot of them see these efforts to restrict the vote as deeply unjust. And I think it hurts the Republican image among many of the groups they need to become more popular with, particularly Hispanics, Asian Americans. Let's leave it there. Ben Bradley died this week, age 93. He was the pirate captain of American journalism, (laughs) charismatic, fierce, funny, ambitious. He became legend, of course, with his amazing editorship of the Washington Post in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, particularly in the Pentagon Papers episode in Watergate, above all, and in the, I guess, the launch of style would be the third thing, which he gets credit for, which is this, the section of the post that changed, in some sense, how newspapers wrote and, and covered things. I knew Ben slightly through his wife, uh, Sally Quinn, but uh, you guys probably knew him slightly too, no? Did you, you must have met yes, him. Yeah. I met him, but I did not know him. We were, t- we were all, th- all three of us were too young to have really seen him in action. But 
I certainly read his Washington Post growing up. That was the the paper around our breakfast table, and it was a paper that taught you what great a great newspaper could be, and and certainly instilled in me the idea of what journalism could be. And I all of us, of course, grew up in the shadow of Watergate, in the sense that this is what journalism can accomplish. And there's two kind of areas to delve into. One is has some of the spirit vanished from American newspapers for reasons we can discuss. One and two, actually, has there is there too much of it in American newspapers? Would be another argument. Have we gone too far in the direction that that Bradley led us? But so, Emily, let me start with you. Can, could an editor like Ben Bradley, who combined a kind of incredible aggression and ambition with a deep chumminess with the people that he was covering, sometimes can that could such a person lead a big? media enterprise today? I think it would be really hard. And in some ways, that's a good thing because we've gotten more nervous about coziness. But what makes me feel really nostalgic is that Bradley is one of the few people who really was larger than life and about whom you can just revel in these wonderful stories and quips that we're all hearing in the wake of his death. And I just feel like there's a loss. There's just a nostalgic for this big personality who cursed all the time and, you know, made all kinds of his proclivities really clear. And things are just much more buttoned down. We live in a world of more properness in the same way that you couldn't have John F. Kennedy with all his, like, horrible womanizing be president. And I know that's a good thing. But then you look at the abstemious, you know, very well behaved personalities of George W. Bush and Barack Obama. And then there's a little bit of of me that is nostalgic for that wild side. I feel the same way about the era that passes with um, Bradley. I think there, one of the things I've thought about is how how much he made you feel that journalism was fun but it also mattered <laughs> and that journalism is this grand adventure where you basically get the privilege of going out and experiencing things and then telling other people about them, right? I mean, I, I haven't had the most adventurous life as a journalist, but I've had great adventures, right? I haven't, I've never covered a war, but I've sat in the cockpit of an airplane flying over the Rocky Mountains, right? And you also have the experience of doing things where you feel like you get to have an impact on the political debate. And I think the way he combined the seriousness of journalism and the fun of it, I think is part of the nostalgia that a lot of people feel feel, as well as the the style that he had, right? Lowercase s and uppercase s. um, It's just magnificent. Do you guys think that the journalism he created, in particular, let's talk about Watergate and the profound investigative journalism culture that came out of Watergate. Has that been a good for us or bad for us? Much more good than bad because we investigate now and we're skeptical and we think that part of our job as journalists is not to get not to let politicians get away with any kind of shenanigans that we can possibly find out about it. And of course, the pendulum in some ways has swung too far and we get obsessed with anything that we can put gate on the tail end of is some kind of pseudo scandal. And that is problematic. But I think imagine the world without the sorts of skepticism and investigatory muscle that Watergate helped give birth to. And that would be a much poorer American democracy. I agree with that. I think uh, Matt Bai just had this book that came out about Gary Hart. John reviewed it for Slate. Um, yes, indeed. And he basically arg- – Matt Bai argues that Watergate was the real thing, right? <laughs> and then history repeated itself as farce with Gary Hart. And and you can debate that whole question. I agree with Emily that definitely the investigative culture is mostly to the good, overwhelmingly to the good. 
But I do think there's a way in which sometimes we've defined our targets as journalists a little small, right? We are very comfortable going after almost any sort of personal peccadillo of a major politician. We're very comfortable criticizing the strategy of politics. Sometimes we're comfortable criticizing the stagecraft, you know, Obama looks disengaged. And yet we're sometimes oddly unwilling to get our hands dirty with some of the substance of it. And I think as great an accomplishment as Watergate was, and it's just an undeniably, uncomplicatedly great accomplishment, I do think some of the ways in which journalism has then reacted to it have had some real downsides. Give an example of a downside there. Well, so Matt's argument would be the Gary Hart scandal that we took this candidate who who had fair number of things to recommend him and got drummed out of the race by adultery. There are parts of Matt's argument I agree with and parts I disagree with. But I do think that in general, we are not just cable news, but even the serious media spend a lot of time still on these character issues. And right. that's the part of Matt's argument that I think I agree with, which is we have come to define character somewhat narrowly um, in a way that I don't think is particularly helpful. You know what I want to take issue with there is the notion that the Gary Hart story was a trivial one because I think there was a truth in the kind of dismissive treatment of women that Hart's whatever was going on with Donna Rice revealed. There was something about the way he viewed women and what how it was perfectly acceptable for a politician in the 80s to to act that way as if women were like arm candy or bimbos that we got a big exposure to. And I think that's actually been a helpful, useful development in politics. And while I'm sure you're right about our narrowness of our definition of character and how trivial it gets. When I think of other politicians who have been taken down over this issue, they're almost all men who are acting really badly toward women or with women. And we still elect adulterers, clearly. Yeah, but I don't know. I'm I'm not sure that you know my fondness for Elliot Spitzer. I mean, he's he's somebody who's written for us and he's a friend of mine. I think the Elliot Spitzer scandal, I think that's ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous that Elliot Spitzer lost the governorship of New York because he fucked prostitutes. That seems to me stupid. You know, you could say he, he should have lost the governorship because he was a bad governor or because he was he practiced some form of public corruption. But that it just seemed to me trivia beyond trivia. And well, I don't think it was trivial or ridiculous. I'm not sure I think he deserved to lose the governorship in the end, but I think it's a much closer question than the way you are characterizing it. One of the things, and this connects it to Ben Bradley, which is a reporter for The Washington Post. Ben Bradley was editing The Washington Post in 1987. Asked Gary Hart, have you ever committed adultery? It's interesting. Bai's book talks about Ben Bradley. When Ben Bradley is interviewed after he retires and basically says, do you think any of the people who you gave a hard time to have a legitimate complaint? And Ben Bradley's answer is, well, Gary Hart definitely has a complaint. I don't think it's legitimate. But of all the people he could have chosen, that was his answer to the question. And I do think – so there's one question, which is, do we want people who serially mistreat women? Do we want people who visit prostitutes in positions of high government? Another question is, do we want to be asking people who run for president uh, – have you ever done X? Right. Uh, I'm not so sure that we do. And you could say, well, yes, now we ask it and we let them be in politics anyway. But I don't even know that we want to be asking that question. And I don't – Emily, what was the evidence that Gary Hart serially mistreated women? He – I 
I'm, I'm not, not sure there is evidence that he's mistreated women. Mistreated. I'm saying that he was treating Donna Rice in this very flippant way. He seemed to be off on a cruise with like blonde women sitting on his lap. He thought it was perfectly okay to take those pictures. I do not think he was taking them seriously as human beings and that that was, uh, you know, the message of all of that excursion. On like it was it was taking it, you know, I'm a I'm a married man of approximately the age that Gary Hart is and I certainly would never go on a cruise and have some you know pretty blonde woman sit on my lap for a picture like that but is that a sin at the level of you know that that reveals something profound about his character especially at otro tempore otro tempes otro mores time I mean that's 25 30 years ago like it, I think that it was a relevant fact that it was perfectly legitimate to report about, particularly since he had invite he had basically said, "Hey, come and follow me around." He had invited this and acted as if this behavior was completely irrelevant. Voters can decide whether they think it's relevant or not. It might have mattered to me. I don't know. I'd have to I mean, think Ted about Kennedy it and what choices somebody. I'd Ted had Kennedy at the time. killed a but, woman driving. Yeah, her and that's drunk. another relevant data point that I'm perfectly glad to have surfaced and have a lot of reporting about. And then you get to decide how important you think it is. The reason I'm a little uncomfortable with the voters can decide is we have to make choices as journalists, right? We don't get to go get find out all the information about these people's lives and then present them to voters. And I think, look, in Watergate, you had a president of the United States essentially conducting a massive criminal conspiracy. And I think part of what's happened since then is we treat a lot of little things almost as if it, it rises to that level. And then we say, we're just going to give you the information and you guys can decide. But we have to make choices. Do we put reporters on those stories? Right. Or do we put them on other stories that actually give voters more important information? Right. And Emily, you... So after you, the wait. Miami Herald got the call from Donna Rice's friends, uh, friend as assigning editors, would you have assigned the reporter to go sniff around? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't. I'm not oh, sure. Oh, you're ducking. Wait, no, no. Both I'm not going to duck it. I'm not going to duck it. I, this is not the kind of journalism I've ever been part of. Not the kind of journalism I do. It's like I. I'm not interested in it. I would say this, Emily. You are. You've been very eloquent when I talk about how how we need to change standards for digital histories, our own digital histories. And you point out like there are certain things you can't unsee. If you see a girl like who's who's like doing something stupid online or sexual online, it's like very hard to unsee that and take her as though you'd never seen it before. That's the same thing with Gary Hart. It's like if you when you talk about sort of personal narratives around sexuality in particular. And sexual behavior and and character in that way, it just causes other human beings to come to judgments about you, which carry excessive weight and would be much better – for them not to because it, it, it they overweight uh, it that. It would be much better for them not to. So now you're making a decision that it's better to withhold information yes. from voters because they essentially can't remain rational in the face of it. And you happen to want to withhold information no, about how Leonhardt these politicians treat You Leonhardt treat it and you say oh, your beat, you don't have a beat. You don't have a beat, which is let's catch everybody out in their sexual behavior. I, I want to actually make a point. I want to now praise David Leonhardt, because because if <laughs> you look great. at what the New York Times looking what, for an ally. what David is doing is I think one of the wonderful things that's happening in journalism right now, and I don't know whether there's intent to this or just coincidence or we live in an age of data and that's why it's happening, is that we've we have a shift of people who've moved from kinds of investigative pursuits to explanatory pursuits, where rather than spending time like ferreting, although you, you certainly have people ferreting, that you, you also have this rise of people who seek to explain, like to look what exists, what is there in plain sight, and to, to make sense of it. And that's an allocation of resources. You are not, you, David Leonhardt, are not out there on the, you know, does Ted Cruz have a mistress beat? You're sitting there with a whole bunch of spreadsheets, like tediously with spreadsheeting away. <laughs> 
You make it sound so yes, glamorous. The, <laughs> no, the I appreciate that. The New York Times that. gets a tip that Ted Cruz has a mistress. They're going to go try to find out the same way they did with John McCain. And maybe there'll be excess and questions yeah, but about whether it, they That John McCain right. episode was just like ugly in all respects. It didn't, that was what the, did it reveal? your best example. And I just gave it to you. Let me just point that out for you. That is the one that might prove your case. Gary Hart was hugely reckless in how he behaved in a bunch of ways, right? The kinds of things he did to think he could get away with that in the middle of the campaign. But I don't think you need to defend Gary Hart to be uncomfortable with how we in the media have defined our role post-Watergate in some respects. I would say like, like the John Edwards is the interesting one because I certainly feel yeah, like was that was a legitimate story. And I, why do I mm. feel that was legitimate and Gary Hart wasn't? Hmm. I need to – Yeah, why? I need why to don't drink you think that. about that for a minute? He did – father or child. That uh, is the thing that makes the difference to you? That Gary doesn't Hart. seem to me to be the salient differential. I don't think there is really one. In fact, I think it's all a spectrum. And yeah. All right. Let's leave it there. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are stalking Gary Hart in an alley, David Leonhart, what are you going to be chattering about? Well, it's World Series week. Oh, boy. And I know you guys are not sports fans, so I'm going to twist it away from sports. It is. The World Series has had two games. (laughs) I'm just kidding. My kids are so (laughs) appalled that I would even ask that question. So knowing that this is not the sports fest, it's the Gab Fest or the Gab Sports or whatever I should say, um, I'm going to twist it and say I'm interested in how much we've moved away from excellence in Major League Baseball. It used to be that baseball was the sport where a team had to prove itself over six long months of playing every day. This year, we have two teams in the World Series that were not much better than mediocre this year because we've expanded the playoffs. And so what happens is you can get into the playoffs in all kinds of ways, and then you go on a hot streak, and we all sit around and tell ourselves, it's because they're gritty, it's because they're clutch, it's because they got hot at the right time. I still love baseball, but I think there's something a little bit sad about it because I think baseball was the sport which in some ways was more meritocratic. And now if you want that kind of meritocracy, you actually have to look across the pond to England where this is fascinating. You know, in England, they don't really have playoffs. I do know that. The way they crown their soccer champion, they have all kinds of little tournaments, but the way they, they crown their... They also don't have baseball. Have they don't have baseball. That? But the way they crown their soccer champion is you just have the best record and you don't have to go into any well, kind of tournament. Yes, that is true. But there are tournaments. There There's are set, tournaments. There are lots of tournaments that are running parallel. There's a Champions League. There's relegation, which we don't have. There are all kinds of ways that it's different. So if I said to How you— How about regular season plus I love, I love. I, I support you. I favor the British system. If you said who had the best record in baseball this year, I'm a big baseball fan. I, I actually have to think for a minute. I think it was the Angels. It might have been the Nats. I have no idea. But in England, that team wins the most prestigious of the different trophies. Right. And here we just kind of discard them. And right. so, uh, so I, as much as I'm enjoying the World Series, I mourn a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we don't. I, I could go on for like hours about this subject. So I'm gonna just. I'm fascinated with the the, the Premier League system. We can talk about it later. Emily, what is your chatter? <laughs> it's not about baseball. Have you guys watched the show Transparent yet? The Amazon Prime show about a father. Just the pilot. It I is so good. I'm completely obsessed with it. It oh, is good. hilarious. This show. It has one of my favorite actresses in it. The I don't even know her name, but she played Adam Driver's sister in Girls. She's oh completely yeah, nuts she's good and has the best wow. eyebrows ever. And I'm just really having a good time watching the show. It's it feels to me like it's it has an excuse since it's about this major social issue, and I can kind of pretend to myself that that's why I'm watching it. But really, I'm just watching it because it's funny. Uh, I'm now writing, I'm emailing myself, watch Transparent. Do you still watch network TV or do you essentially watch only Amazon, Netflix, DVD stuff? I still watch. 
watch HBO and Showtime. I can't think of oh, and Parks and Rec, and yeah, I I think I watch a little. I forget what the origin of the the shows that I watch is. What about you? The only reason we have a TV is sports. Meaning, I to me for the the the, the many way. I mean, I'm kind of interested in, from from the media standpoint. The many ways you can now watch these shows. There's not much reason to have a TV uh, unless you want to watch sports. Hmm. All this other stuff is so easy to do in yeah, other ways. I guess that's true. I, right. That's true. Unless you think of the TV as just the bigger screen, which is still kind of nice. Yeah. But yeah. You know what? A confession. I just I cannot figure out how to get stuff that I'm watching on my computer on my TV. Oh, that's a totally normal confession. That took us like ages and involved some altercation from up high, intervention from up high. The key to that I've learned is just be married to someone much better at those things than you. And I, then I, I, I can't that. You need this I'm too late. That's not it. <laughs> <laughs> is your wife available? <laughs> yes. She can come just over and set up that. your TV and I'll now be in trouble I'm for I'm pretty technically that. capable too. All right. My chatter is there's a wonderful Wonderful, wonderful story in The New Yorker by Patricia Marks. Did you guys read the story? I have not. It's called, I think it's called Take Your Pet Anywhere. And it's about the bullshitness of emotional support animals. So there's been this move. So in America, we have legitimate service animals, which are animals that perform actual acts to help people. Seen eye dogs being a great example. There are plenty of other ones, which really, you know, help people who have certain kinds of disabilities. There has been a rise of this category of animal, which are not, it's a, not a real category called the emotional su- support animal, which is an animal you can get sort of a, like a totally bogus certification from like made up companies that are just profiting off your certification to say that your your pet your whatever it is is an emotional support animal and that gives you certain rights and technically the only rights it gives you it does give you some right to live in housing you can have your pet in housing which otherwise excludes animals and some right to carry that animal on an airplane that's it but people assume that it gives you all kinds of other rights so patricia marks just did this brilliant stunt where she took a turtle and she got a letter claiming this turtle was her emotional support animal. She took it to the Frick Gallery in New York and to a, a Louboutin store. She took a snake to Chanel and to Balthazar. She took a turkey on the bus, an alpaca on the train, and a pig on the plane. And did just, everyone defer? Everyone to her deferred to her. Everyone deferred. And how did huh. she describe it? She said, this is my emotional she, yeah, support animal? Yeah, she had animal? a letter, which she basically forged, that, that said, this is her emotional support animal. It brings her – and occasionally people would say, like, what, what solace does that turkey bring you? And, you know, she'd make something up. Or the snake – what solace does a snake bring you? Oh, my God. And, but people were ridiculously polite to her, ridiculously kowtowed to her. her I could imagine behavior. being comforted by a nice snake. Really? A snake? Yeah. I used to like snakes. Did you? I haven't encountered one for a while, but yeah. Is, wow. They're like smooth and you could stroke them and that can make you feel kind of calm. I could imagine. Do you have a snake? As an emotional Not a turkey, though. I don't have a snake. It's sort of fun Not to think, now. what would Ben Bradley have done if someone tried to bring an emotional support animal into the Washington Post newsroom? <laughs> Highlights Emily's point about how society has changed for both better for and worse. For the worse. worse. <laughs> uh, our producer... Today and all days is Mike Volo. Our intern is Max Tawney. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Joel Meyer is our new managing editor, which is awesome. He's like, uh, comes highly recommended from Mike Volo. So he's going to be good, says Mike Volo. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. It has lots of links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. 
Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Do not forget our Chicago show, slate.com slash chaigabfest on November 12th. Please come to that. You can subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes, leave a comment and rating while you're there. If you like the show, that rating and that commenting really helps us. For Emily Bazelon and David Leonhart of The Upshot at The New York Times, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino's home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.